pray, Father, now for the instruction of the Spirit of God who leads us into all truth and guides us to know your word and your will. I pray that we would work to align our lives with that will as we see it here in Scripture. I pray that you would guide in the heart of those who know you not as Savior and that they would come to submit to your Lordship, to your saving grace, and receive it with thanksgiving. We pray, Father, for this opportunity and ask that your name would be hallowed and honored among us here. Through Christ we pray. Amen. Sacrificial devotion to God can never substitute for obedience to his word. This principle is fundamental to the Christian faith. It's a principle that we need to uphold as we interpret our world, as we walk in fellowship with one another, and as we learn to assess our own hearts. Sacrificial devotion to God can never substitute for obedience to his word. This principle is scorned, for instance. When a prominent Christian leader justifies sexual deviance because of the stress of his ministry responsibilities. This principle is lost when a Christian father takes great pride in leading his wife and children in faithful church attendance, but fails to lead them spiritually in the home. This principle is dismissed when a woman rests in the consistency of her daily Bible reading and prayers, yet subjects her family to harsh, impatient speech and demanding expectations. We turn our backs on the principle that sacrificial devotion to God can never substitute for obedience to His Word when we praise God in song while lacking compassion for those that sing around us, failing to point unbelievers to Christ, or misusing people at work. Now, there's nothing evil about religious devotion, of course. God wants us to practice such rituals. But religious devotion to the Lord can never replace our need to obey God's word. For Samuel chapter 15, you remember King Saul disobeyed God's word in offering an animal sacrifice to the Lord, and the prophet Samuel confronted Saul. Saul bristled, and he defended himself by pointing to his religious activity, his devotion to God, the sacrifice that he had made even against the will of the Lord. And remember that statement that Samuel makes. Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? And the answer, of course, is no. Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to listen, that is to heed the word of God, than the fat of, lamb, of rams. Our first priority as God's people is obedience to his word. With acts of religious devotion then following and expressing a heart of devotion to the Lord in that sense. So in Zechariah chapter 7, as we come with those thoughts in mind, this stands among numerous biblical passages that develop this vital principle. First of all, 
some historical background. After the fall of the northern kingdom of Israel in 722 BC, they were taken to Assyria. God sent generation after generation of prophet to the southern kingdom of Judah, calling upon them to repent and not follow the way of the northern kingdom. But due to her persistent refusal to turn from her disobedience to God's word, God judged Judah with 70 years of captivity in Babylon. In 538 BC, King Cyrus, the Persian king now ruling that area, allowed the Israelites to go back to the land, to repopulate it and to rebuild it. And two years later, in 536 BC, Zechariah traveled with his priestly family from Babylon back to Jerusalem. At this moment, the temple project was about halfway through a four-year period of rebuilding. It's important to keep in mind as we enter into this chapter. So about halfway through a four-year period of reconstruction. The town of Bethel, just to get our location here, not very far north from Jerusalem, just a short ways from Jerusalem, there is this town that is now beginning to resettle and build itself back up slowly over time. Zechariah is going to receive two individuals that come as representatives or as, uh, coming as a delegation to ask questions at the temple of the priests. So the temple has a presence now, it's being constructed possibly even priests already beginning to live there on site. And these individuals come down to the south, coming up to Jerusalem, with a question for the priests and the prophets there at Jerusalem. So with that setting in mind, we find, first of all, a question about worship that leads to a rebuke about selfishness. Verse 1 of chapter 7, In the fourth year of King Darius... The word of the Lord came to Zechariah on the fourth day of the ninth month, which is Chislev. Note here, the word of the Lord. You see that phrase, the word of the Lord coming to Zechariah, and then drop down to verse 4. We see, then the word of the Lord came to me. So there's a repetition. We're coming back to the point of the word of the Lord, verse 1 to verse 4. That means verses 2 and 3 are something of a parenthesis. That is, there's going to be a pause here for just a moment to set the circumstances leading up to this message from the Lord. What are those circumstances? Verse 2, Now the people of Bethel had sent Sherezer and Regamelech and their men to entreat the favor of the Lord. So they're coming again to Jerusalem to seek audience with the priests stationed at the construction site. And their noble mission is to entreat the favor of the Lord. That means to earnestly seek God's face for wisdom. They want to find information from the Lord that they need. They've traveled to Jerusalem to seek this counsel. And seeking God's will about this specific matter, verse 3. Saying to the priests of the house of the Lord of hosts and the prophets, Should I weep and abstain in the fifth month? as I have done for so many years. The I here is just picturing Bethel as a person. Should we, we would put it that way, but should I, should we as the town, as a single entity, 
weep and abstain in the fifth month. What on earth does that mean? Weeping and abstaining is a reference to fasting and prayer, to repentant prayer and abstinence from food to accentuate their sorrow. Now, the Mosaic law required only one day of fasting per year, that on the Day of Atonement, but fasting with prayer is certainly a noble practice. There's nothing wrong with that religious ritual by any means. And during the 70-year captivity, the Israelites had established four separate days of fasting in order to mourn their judgment by God. So on the ninth day of the fourth month, they fasted to remember the day that the Babylonian army broke through the walls of Jerusalem. It was first breached on that day, and the Israelites living in Babylon fasted on that day to remember that moment of judgment by God. On the third day of the seventh month, They also fasted to remember the death of Governor Gedaliah, which completed the Jews' deportation to Babylon and symbolized the horror of it all. Then on the tenth day of the tenth month, they fasted to remember the start of the final siege of Jerusalem, in which so many died, so many starved to death, and such horror and suffering began to take place. So those three days... And then obviously here, they're referring to the a fourth the, on the fifth, during the fifth month, on the ninth day of the fifth month, because that fast mourned the burning of the first temple, Solomon's temple by the Babylonian army. So that should make sense as we think about it. The temple's being rebuilt. We've suffered the judgment of God for 70 years. Now the temple's being rebuilt. This fast day on which we remember the destruction of the first temple, should it be set aside, should it be retired, so that we can rejoice in the building of the second temple? Makes sense, right? It's, it's, it's a logical question. They've been doing this for 70 years, observing this day of fasting and prayer. I suppose then, as they speak here of the fifth month and that commemoration of the burning of the temple, I imagine that if the priests and the prophets said, yes, that should be retired, let's turn that into a day of celebration rather than a day of fasting, I imagine all the other three would drop with it. Maybe, maybe not. But it's most specifically applicable to the situation now as the temple's being rebuilt. How does that question strike you? They come all the way up to Jerusalem to ask this question. Does it strike you as an honest, sincere question? An earnest seeking after God's will? It certainly strikes me that way. And I think if you, certainly if you ask them, they would say, yes, this is an honest question. We really want to know what is the will of the Lord. They could have just stopped observing it. But they're going to the priests and to the prophets and asking this earnest question about worship. Should we continue this practice? Verse 4. So we come back now to the word of the Lord with that background. Verse 4, Then the word of the Lord of hosts came to me. Say to all the people of the land and the priests, When you fasted and mourned in the fifth month and in the seventh, For these 70 years, was it for me that you fasted? He leaves off here the 4th and the 10th, but he'll pick that up later in chapter 8. 
that this is certainly not the answer that they were expecting. Is it even an answer? God does not answer yes. He does not answer no. God pivots around the question that they're asking, and he issues a word that drove deeply at the essence of the matter. They fasted and wept and prayed in ritual sacrifice to God as they sought his favor, but God knows their hearts better than they know them. And he says, when you devote yourselves over these years to ritualistic fasting, you're actually just serving your own selfish interests. That's that's a rebuke, not an answer to the information they sought. This is true of your fasting. It is also true of your feasting, verse 6. And when you eat and when you drink, do you not eat for yourselves and drink for yourselves? So in all of this ritual that sought to honor God and remember his hand of discipline against them, God looks deep into their heart and says, really, in all of this, you're just serving your own selfish interests. You're self-centered as you put aside food and seek God in prayer. It's horrifying to even be brought to our attention that that's possible. We'd like to believe otherwise. But now at verse 7, God starts to provide a history lesson to drive home the point that he's seeking to make in this inquiry. Verse 7, were not these the words that the Lord proclaimed by the former prophets when Jerusalem was inhabited and prosperous, when her cities around her and the south and the lowland were inhabited? The former prophets. This is a reference to the generations of prophets who repeatedly warned Judah about the punishment of captivity in Babylon. Look around right now. What do you see? You see a nation that is undersized, trying to recover the land that has been left aside for 70 years, almost entirely. Not entirely, but almost. Few people have lived there, but very few. They're trying to rebuild the infrastructure. They they are a weak, forgotten people right now. The major nations of the world care nothing about this place now. But this brings God brings to their attention then to remember back to those days of great prosperity. When all was so well here, and these these towns that are now nearly empty were bustling with activity. Back then, as you prospered, God continued to bring prophets to you to say, look at your heart. Consider your relationship with the Lord. And they continued to spurn them, these former prophets. That's the prophets before the captivity. Those such as Isaiah and Jeremiah. He references here in verse 7, the south, that's the, we know as the Negev, to the south of Jerusalem, and the lowland we know as the Shvelah, to the west of Jerusalem, down to the Mediterranean Sea. In both of these regions, there were, there were flocks that were grazing. There was pasture land in these places, and food was out there eating the grass. Uh, as, as it was a prosperous time. Remember those days, he says. So God... What does he do with the question of these individuals? He really ignores it. The issue is not your fasts. It's not your prayers. The question was the hard attitude of God's people. Obedience must come first. Then the ritual adorns it and celebrates it. 
in right relationship with the Lord. They were guilty of performing religious rituals with hearts hardened to God, with hearts hardened to one another. And God was not pleased. Their sacrificial devotion only served their own interests. Giving themselves away in sacrificial devotion to God, they were really just serving themselves. At verse 8, there's another word from the Lord that's now referenced, and that is that present concern about what to do with these days of fasting leads to a lesson from the past. Verse 7 has already gotten us thinking about that with the former prophets, and now a section here in verses 8 through 14 that deals with that more pointedly. Verse 8, And the word of the Lord came to Zechariah, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Render true judgments. Show kindness and mercy to one another. Do not oppress the widow, the fatherless, the sojourner, or the poor, and let none of you devise evil against another in your heart. This is the consistent message of God sent to his people during their days of captivity and before those days of captivity as well, which is the emphasis here on these former prophets. But God is never served by ritual alone. He is not after our ceremonies ultimately. He's after our hearts. He wants us to love Him with all of our hearts. He wants us to love those around us as He loves them. Selflessly, sacrificially, in a way that builds them up. We could break this down into four specific statements. Render true judgments. This is God's call upon us to render true judgments. In the broadest sense, the Hebrew word translated justice, mishpat, speaks of the proper ordering of all of society. It's doing things right with other people. This means that morally, religiously, spiritually, politically, socially, economically, in every aspect of life, we're to treat others justly, without bias, and without partiality. To treat all people as made in the image of God. This is God's requirement to us. So just as we think on that ourselves, having come to worship today, if there's a person, if there's a family, if there's a group of people you despise or refuse to talk to or are belittling or even misusing then know that you're singing, you're praying, you're hearing of God's word in church today does nothing to address your sin. It does not substitute for that at all. And secondly, he says to show kindness and mercy. The Hebrew word has no English equivalent, so allowances must be made here. But this is a pretty unfortunate translation. Kindness, in the sense that the Hebrew word speaks of kindness as, like, let's say, just of illustration, like 1% of the meaning is kindness. This Hebrew word has said is rich, and it has really two fields of meaning. The first is love, and the second is loyalty. It's often found of God in his covenant relationship with his people, and we might translate it better, steadfast love, enduring, faithful, never-failing love. This we are to have coupled with mercy or compassion for those who suffer. So we notice again the relational term. 
You're coming wondering about fasting. You have these rituals that you are following, the sacrifices that you are offering even at the word of the Lord. I'm concerned about how you think about others. How you're relating to them. Are you a person marked by steadfast, loyal love for God's people? So we note again the relational term. How we relate, not ritual worship first, but as a consequence. And then thirdly, do not oppress, verse 10, and naming here the widow, the fatherless, sojourner, the poor. Do not oppress them. God is deeply concerned with how we relate to the vulnerable, to the weak, and to the afflicted. The people groups referenced here were virtually defenseless in that society particularly. They were groups who faced serious disadvantages in society and possessed fewer legal rights than others. So God calls his people not to use any wealth or power that they might have in mastery over others, to use it to leverage, your, to get your way, to influence others wrongly, but rather to use that wealth and to use that influence to love, to show compassion, to build up and edify. Now, as we think of it in application to ourselves, I think it's right to say that uh, in our socialistic society, which we are at this point, where disadvantage is often leveraged to the point of irresponsibility, it's not always an easy process to know how to apply this. I think we need to recognize that. But that said, may God never find us using power and using wealth to harm others, to hold them down, to leverage our own situation on the backs of others but rather to lift up the needy and the vulnerable. May we as a church be oriented that way, and we as neighbors and individuals orient our lives that way to build up, to encourage, and to bless those who are in a vulnerable position. And there are many in this world. The fourth heart issue is let, no, let none devise evil against another in your heart. Again, we see the relational heart-level holiness that God seeks from His people. None of this is hard to understand. It's all rather obvious in the end. But at issue in obedience to God's Word is what one commentator rightly calls a dogged attentiveness to familiar truths. A dogged attentiveness to familiar truths. When it comes to loving others as God would have us love them, that takes unrelenting focus we don't need to do much of anything to be self-centered that comes so naturally to us to put our interests first to use other people to get our way to demand that we get our rights and our uh, what is owed to us that that comes quite naturally to us but to love others and to think, how is my life lifting others up as a servant of God to encourage and to strengthen? That takes consistent, dogged attentiveness to truths that are quite obvious, but that our flesh so often rejects. Well, how, with this history lesson, how did Israel respond? 
How did Israel respond to this consistent message of love for God and love for neighbor preached by God's prophets before the Babylonian captivity? Verse 11, but they refused to pay attention. They turned a stubborn shoulder and stopped their ears that they might not hear. They turned a stubborn shoulder. This was a a phrase they would have understood of, of oxen as they twisted their bodies in order to resist the yoke going around their neck. That's how they responded to God's word. I don't really want to hear that. I turn a a shoulder away from what God has said. They stopped their ears. The Hebrew is they made their ears heavy. That is, they made them dull. And I think a fair translation that they stopped them. They just weren't listening to what God was saying. And in a moral spiral that continues to go downward verse 12 they made their hearts diamond hard lest they should hear the law and the words that the lord of hosts had sent by his spirit through the former prophets diamond hard impenetrable to the conviction of god's word this is the ultimate tragedy any human being can suffer, to have a hardened heart to the words of God, the words of God filtering into the soul and made alive by the Spirit of God is the truth that revives. It's the truth that gives counsel. It's the truth that steers us in the way that we should go. When our hearts are hard to that, it's like that baked, hard ground Some southern city in the south in the middle of the summer. And the rain comes and runs right off of it. It just won't soak it in. That's the hard heart. Here, diamond hard. At some point, God's patience would become a vice were he not to rebuke such hardness of heart. And so as verse 12 continues, you see, therefore... That great anger came from the Lord of hosts. That's a reference to the slow, systematic destruction of Jerusalem by the Babylonian army. Also a reference to Judah's deportation then to Babylon and captivity there for 70 years. Ironically and tragically, Israel got what they earned. So intense is the development here that Zechariah loses the third person and quotes God in the first person, where ironically in verse 13 he then says, As I called and they would not hear, so they called and I would not hear, says the Lord of hosts. And I scattered them with a whirlwind among all the nations that they had not known, Thus the land they left was desolate, so that no one went to and fro, and the pleasant land was made desolate. The busy, bustling, delightful land of Israel was virtually deserted. It was a wasteland of despair. Why? Because God's people had grown diamond-hard hearts to the Word of God. God had called Judah to obedience. Now in her anguish and despair, Judah calls out to God for help. Help us. Rescue us. And God is silent. For 70 years have been decreed for discipline and that discipline has now fallen and there's no prayer to answer. A horrible memory. 
What is Zechariah saying to these people now return to the land? Do not follow your ancestors. Live differently. Heed the word of the Lord. Have a tender heart toward him. You want to come and talk to me about what fast you should keep? Let's talk about your heart. I can imagine these poor chaps from Bethel are blinking. They're wondering what just happened. We came here in sincerity, and what we're getting is a rebuke. And it's a rebuke not just to them, but you notice here that it's reference to all of God's people. They had a simple question as they saw it. But not only did Zechariah not counsel them with an answer to their question, he received a word of God And that word ignored the question. They had a procedural question. They had a liturgical question. A question pertaining to the practice of their sacrificial devotion to God. But God was more interested in how their worship translated into love for Him and love for others. Or even to put it the other way around, how love for God and love for others translated into vibrant worship. That's God's interest, and he steers and directs them here through Zechariah. As he probed deeply into people's conscience, he instructed them to know that we can perform acts of religious ritual and sacrificial devotion for our own self-centered purposes. To serve our likes and our dislikes. To serve our families. To serve the interests that we have, putting the interests of God aside as we sacrificially devote ourselves to religious ritual. It's a category we need to have in our mind. It's, a, it's something that we must resist. And it's a consistent theme of Scripture. Think of Proverbs 21.3, to do righteousness and justice is more acceptable to the Lord than sacrifice. It's not that sacrifice is unacceptable to God as as it stands, but what he's after is the righteousness of heart and the justice with which we treat others. Isaiah 1, when you come to appear before me, who has required of you this trampling of my courts? You have to understand the, the meaning of that idea. Well, God has, in fact called for the trampling of his courts, for the presence of God's people at the temple. But because of their hard hearts, he says, bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations. I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. Does God want solemn assembly? The reason they were assembling was because they were following the word of the Lord concerning new moon and Sabbath feasts and the like. He had ordered the trampling of his courts. But because their hearts were wrong, he said, I'm sick of it all. I cannot endure sin and your religious gatherings. Micah, With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before Him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams and ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body 
for the sin of my soul? What sacrificial devotion must I give to the Lord? Well, here it is, verse 8. He's told you, O man, what is good. What does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, to walk humbly with your God? It's a consistent message of Scripture. Sacrificial devotion to God can never substitute for obedience to His Word. That's kind of a discouraging chapter, isn't it? I mean, it is, there's not a lot of hope here. And um, as we continue in this series of, on the Word of God, uh, we are constantly peeling off things that would be good to consider. And it would be best to consider all of chapter 8 in careful detail to match it to chapter 7. For there's a development here that's really beautiful. As we just poke our nose into chapter 8, we find the word of the Lord of hosts came saying again, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I am jealous for Zion with great jealousy. I'm jealous for her with great wrath. Thus says the Lord I have returned to Zion. I will dwell in the midst of Jerusalem, and Jerusalem shall be called the faithful city, the mountain of the Lord of hosts, the holy mountain. He has a vision for Israel that she would come to obey Him and honor Him, and that this place, Jerusalem, would not be a place of dead ritual, but would be a place where people came with hearts on fire for God. And gathered here in this place, He's rebuking them in chapter 7, that he might bless them and prepare them for all that he intends, which is always for our good, always for our joy, always for what is best, and for the glory of his name, which is the pinnacle of all of life. Eventually, God addresses the very fast that we're of concern in this question. He brings these up in verses 18 and 19 of chapter 8. The word of the Lord of hosts came to me saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the fast on the fourth month, the fast of the fifth month that they had asked about, the fast of the seventh, the fast of the tenth, shall be to the house of Judah, notice it here, seasons of joy and gladness and cheerful feast, therefore love, truth, and peace. The answer ultimately is for these fasts to go away, for them to be replaced with times of celebration and hope. So again, considering the current situation under Persian rule, the district of Judea was a fledgling place. The population small, the recovery of the land ongoing, the building of the temple slow and fraught with all kinds of opposition and difficulty. Israel was right then an afterthought in the eyes of the nations. So small, so weak, Cyrus of Persia can say, go on back. Do whatever you can to get restarted. You're of no concern to me, no fear. But God promised a day, a day to come in Israel's future when Jerusalem would pulsate with the ritual worship of souls in love with God. The prophet and the priest would speak of this day, would point to this day when hearts filled with love for God would gather and throughout all the world people would come 
to hear the word of the Lord. And that one who would speak that word, of course, is the prophet and the priest yet to come. In his first coming, our Savior as prophet and priest died in the place of sinners to rescue us from our sin, to pay the penalty of our sin, to give us life in his name. And then in his second coming, to reign as king of righteousness over the nations who will stream to his throne in glad procession with hearts that have been changed. With hearts that were diamond hard, now made soft and receptive to his word. So here, the beautiful merging of tender hearts gathered for ritual worship with joy and gladness. And this, in a prospect, is our gathering. As we come on the Lord's day, may we come with hearts that are tender and prepared to receive the word of the Lord. To gather in ritual worship, not, that's not just merely ritual, but that is a celebration of hearts that belong to the Christ who died for us and rose again. Who is coming again and will reign and whose joy we will enter someday in glorification. We should come prepared and ready, and never gather, by the grace of God, never gather with hard hearts that are just going through the motions. But may we pray on Saturday nights and ask God to prepare our hearts, to prepare us for worship, to give us a tender heart that's open to His Word. May we prepare all week by reading His Word and praying and seeking Him but always remembering that it's the tenderness of heart toward him that is of all importance. May God purify us to that end as we anticipate greater days to come in his presence.